Prologue. Hi, I'm Miriam Kramer. I'm the space reporter at Axios, and I'm the host this season of How It Happened. We'll get to what's coming in a moment, but before that, I need to talk about what's been going on, which is a new era of spaceflight. You're probably hearing more about space right now than you have in the last decade or so. There was the triumphant return of human spaceflight launches from U.S. soil last year. And for the first time ever, a private company is about to launch people into orbit. And then this summer, just a few weeks ago with Richard Branson, the billionaire founder of Virgin Galactic. Now the first person to reach the edge of space in his very own spacecraft. You have Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin. Bezos takes flight aboard his new Shepard spaceship. I want to thank uh, every Amazon employee and every Amazon customer, because you guys paid for all of this. Really, I got to say, it's a little concerning that all of a sudden every billionaire is in a race to leave Earth. 2021 has been what I would call an exceptional year in space. I have never seen anything quite like this. SpaceX plans to fly its first civilian crew into space later this year. But this didn't just come out of nowhere. It's been developing in the background for years. I started covering space in 2012, about a year after the end of the space shuttle program. The space shuttle spreads its wings, final time for the start of a sentimental journey into history. Even before the space shuttle landed for the final time, there were private companies waiting in the wings, looking for new ways to take more people to space. The rise of these private companies has allowed them to propel space forward in ways that only nations were able to before. It's gonna be exciting because you're seeing the rise of commercial spaceflight, but at the same time, there were people rooting for Jeff Bezos not to come back. This is not just good or bad, this is a very complicated time in space. But I've been paying attention to another mission this year. It's called Inspiration4. Four private citizens on a chartered SpaceX capsule will orbit the Earth for about three days. And there's not a single professional astronaut among them. Here's why I think this SpaceX mission is important. The flights that Bezos and Branson took were simpler, easier, far shorter, and required very little training. Plus, unlike the SpaceX mission, they didn't go to orbit. Bezos and Branson flew on suborbital flights. These suborbital missions last a matter of minutes, but Inspiration4 will be in orbit for three days. They'll also fly higher than the International Space Station, which is about 250 miles above the Earth. I don't think that when a five-year-old is dreaming about becoming an astronaut that they are dreaming about a suborbital trip to space. Elon Musk founded SpaceX with a bigger vision. He wants to bring about a future in which people aren't just living on Earth, but are living on Mars and other planets. Uh, in order to make Mars work, we, we need kind of the next generation of, of rockets and spacecraft. And look, SpaceX is a gutsy company. They came into this industry and said, the way that all of you have been doing this for all these decades, it sucks. And we're going to completely change it. They were seen as sort of this like little kid brother, you know, sort of a fuck up and interesting, but wasn't going to amount to anything. And they proved everybody wrong. You've got to take big chances in order for the potential for a big positive outcome. SpaceX grew from this tiny startup to an absolute beast in the industry. They are one of the most successful and one of the most popular rocket companies on Earth today. SpaceX's Dragon will ferry American astronauts back and forth to the International Space Station. And they did it by doing things differently. They use this philosophy of push something to the point of breaking and then figure out why it broke and make sure it doesn't break again. It does appear, though, that uh, another exciting test, as we say. This is all working towards SpaceX's goal of getting to Mars. They're working out the technical kinks of what it takes to get people to space. And it can help pay the bills in the meantime. So far, SpaceX has flown humans to space three times. SpaceX performing so far right on the dot. And with two American lives on the line, this could not have gone better today. The next time they fly people is just weeks away, 
and it won't be like any other mission. And that very mission, from inception to launch, is what's coming this season on How It Happened. I'll take you inside this mission. Whoa, this is the first mission and we gotta, we gotta get this right. How it came together. And you could be on board. Believe me, it's not a golden ticket to space, it's two golden tickets to space. When the crew was selected, I immediately said, yes, yes, thank you. It felt a lot like when Harry Potter found out he was a wizard. You cannot pick what happens to you in your life, but you can definitely choose how you go through it. I still wanted to try and be an astronaut, even after the rejection, to some extent even more so. How they went from strangers to a crew. The only way you get there is by practicing. Training material, today's four quizzes. We've gone from going like through a whole bunch of PowerPoint sleepy slides to, all right, now we're in training suits. It's gonna provide explicit instructions for what to do if there was suit airflow or audio malfunction. How they overcame challenges. I can't believe I just hiked up 4,500 feet. And bonded. She had that look in her eyes, and just joy. We talk every day. We've got a group text. This is the best feeling of accomplishment ever. I can't wait to share this with my kids and my wife. I saw the new window SpaceX is constructing for the mission. Kubla is cool looking. Three or four panes of like a, like a, McDon a McDonald's bubble window. <laughs> but in a cool way, in like a sci-fi way. <laughs> And nothing in space is easy, okay? There's no part of spacecraft design that is easy or risk-free. My daughter was nervous and anxious about going out there and understanding what's going to happen out there. I can't let my anxiety as a mother prevent her from living her best life. The Challenger accident had happened, and everybody was so excited to see the first teacher in space and watch Krista McAuliffe go up. I don't think about the launch, because when I do, I think about Krista McAuliffe's parents. The image of them that was on every news show, their faces right after. Success is probably the worst thing that can happen to you in the rocket business, because you lose your edge. Every step is its own new step. On the long line of steps that we need to take to get everybody into space. Join me on this journey coming August 31st from Axios. This is what I've been waiting for. I've been training for all of the signs of my life coming together. I'm Miriam Kramer. This is How It Happened, The Next Astronauts. Follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. I first realized that Inspiration4 was different when I was on a call with SpaceX back in February. That in and of itself was pretty rare. The company does not love talking to journalists, so when they have something to say, most of the time we listen. Please keep your questions on topic of today's call. All I knew going into this was that Elon Musk, the CEO of SpaceX, was going to talk about human spaceflight. Well, I think this is, uh, we're very excited to uh, make this announcement with uh, Jared about uh, the uh, first um, sort of, uh, private crew mission on Dragon. Private, as in not NASA and not another government. Almost immediately after Elon Musk gave his initial remarks, he handed the mic over to a guy I had never heard of. So uh, thank you very much, Elon. Thanks to the SpaceX team. Thanks, everyone. His name is Jared Isaacman. And then came the part that really surprised me. No one on board Jared's mission, Inspiration4, would be a professional astronaut. Jared is a CEO, a billionaire. The three other crew members are regular people from around the country. And they'll all fly to space this year. Instead of filling it with three of his friends or coworkers, he was going to practically give away the three seats. My friend Rob Perlman was on this call too. He's a space historian and a reporter. 
that seemed very bold. And it just seemed like a complete, something we had not heard before. Preparing three people who have never been to space before, so you have no idea what their experience is going to be or whether they're going to freak out or if they're going to have idiosyncrasies. And it didn't help that Elon Musk's approach to it, at least in his public comments, were, yeah, we're going to let them do what they want to do. Jared was being treated like the customer. Whatever Jared would like to do, it's up to him. I realized pretty quickly after this call that this is the moment that the whole space industry has been working toward. And that Jared, as the commander of the mission, is going to be in control of three ordinary lives. And in the biggest sense, if Inspiration4 goes well, it's going to be written in the annals of space history as a huge moment along the road toward bringing as many people to space as possible. If it goes poorly, if the worst happens, however, it could bring the space industry to a standstill. I'm Miriam Kramer. I'm the space reporter at Axios. And since that first call in February, I've been following along week by week with Jared and this mission and how it's going. I'll take you inside the mission from crew selection to launch and behind closed doors at SpaceX. I watched the crew as they bonded and trained. And I keep thinking, can this crew do it? Can four ordinary people successfully and safely spend three days in orbit with only a few months of training? And how will it change our future in space? From Axios, this is how it happened. The Next Astronauts. Part one, a few ordinary people. Elon Musk and SpaceX do everything fast. They build things, test them, see if they explode, learn from it, and start again. And their system has worked. In less than two decades, the company proved its critics wrong to become the first to send NASA astronauts to the space station. And soon, the first to send regular people into orbit. And here's something else. Inspiration4 will be only the fourth time SpaceX has sent people into space in the company's history. Right after the crew was selected, one of the very first things they all did together was watch SpaceX's third crewed mission launch. It was a chance to get to know each other and to learn about what to expect. I'm going to take you through that day, too, so you can hear what makes a launch so compelling, whether you've never seen one before or if you've seen dozens, like I have. It never gets old. You're looking live at the Crew Dragon spacecraft and Falcon 9 rocket set to launch four astronauts to the International Space Station in just a few hours. It's early morning in late April. SpaceX is about to launch its third human mission to space. I'm watching at home in Nashville, but Chris Zimbrowski is at Kennedy Space Center in Cape Canaveral, Florida. Christmas is coming. You're going to go see the rocket. I think I slept just a couple hours the night prior, if that. Just weeks before this, Chris, an engineer living in Everett, Washington, was with his wife and kids. He entered a raffle and got himself a ticket to space. Cyan Proctor was there with Chris, too. The first thing that I kept thinking before the launch was, okay, nothing go wrong. Cyan lives in Arizona, where she's a community college professor, and she won a competition to join this mission. Cyan had wanted to be a professional astronaut, but didn't end up making NASA's cut. Now she's in Florida, about to watch a launch that looks a whole lot like the rocket and capsule that will soon take her and Chris into orbit. They must be so excited, is what I kept thinking. They must be so excited. It's so early in the morning, it's still dark. Standing in the crowd by Chris and Cyan is the third crew member, Haley Arsenault. She's the youngest to join the crew. So this was my first launch. And quite a first one to get to witness. Haley works as a physician assistant in Memphis. She survived childhood cancer and was treated by St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Now she works there. As part of a fundraiser, her employer asked if she'd like to go to space to represent the cause. The fourth crew member watching this launch is Jared Isaacman. He'll be the commander of Inspiration4. But like the rest of the crew, he has no experience as an astronaut. 
So you have people that, you know, would never have passed like NASA's like, you know, screening process that, you know, now are, you know, afforded the opportunity to, to go into space. There were a few of us that had never seen a launch in person before. And so that was exciting as the buildup of anticipation came. I thought I was going to have anxiety before the launch, but um, it was actually really serene. I, however, was not feeling so serene. I always get nervous as I'm watching rocket launches. And if I had been standing where Chris, Cyan, Haley, and Jared were watching from, I'd have seen a rocket standing 21 stories high. At the tip is a tiny white capsule that's only about the size of a walk-in closet. And that's where the crew of professional astronauts waiting to launch to space is sitting. The crew is strapped in and ready to go. Final instructions to the crew will be coming at T-minus 10 minutes. I'm just thinking, wow, I'm going to be strapped in there. Outside, steam is billowing off the rocket as it prepares for launch. We were sitting there waiting for the countdown to get down to zero. On the ground in Florida, the Inspiration4 crew is giddy. As they were going through some of the countdowns, uh, you know, we had somebody come over and, and say, you and Sia haven't stopped smiling for the last 10 minutes. Every check they um, check off is one step closer to blasting off. And then at around 10 to 6 in the morning, the moment six, they'd all been waiting five, for. Four, three, two. The countdown hits zero. The nine engines at the base of the Falcon 9 light up. One, zero. Mission. And liftoff, Scott, Steve, Endeavor, alpha. and Crew 2. Copy, 1 Alpha. Endeavor launches once again. You just see this bright flash of light. The rocket starts going up and the sky lights up and there's so many colors. And it's rising up away from the tower for the first 20 seconds. Because light travels more quickly than sound. It, it feels like an eternity before you actually hear that boom. And then the sound came in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you just start to feel the shaking, the vibrating. Nine Berlin engines on the first stage providing 1.7 million pounds of thrust. I'm thinking about those astronauts that are on, they're in the Dragon on top of this Falcon 9 and how much you want this to be so successful. And like, oh, there you go, take them into space. You do it, you, you crazy Falcon 9 rocket. You just feel like you're on the same team, like, go have a great mission. And I just sort of say, like, go, 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 get, get going. <laughs> Falcon 9 will be throttling down the nine Merlin engines shortly here in preparation. And the part that always has me the most stressed out is not when the rocket first ignites, but when it nears a point called maximum aerodynamic pressure. Maximum dynamic pressure, max Q, is the largest structural load that the vehicle sees throughout ascent. So throttling down does help us pass. Supersonic. Throttling down helps us pass through this period, which should be coming here shortly. And I think that all of us kind of worry, okay, like if something bad is going to happen, that's probably around the time that it will. Max Q. There's our call out that we have just passed through max Q now exceeding 8,000 miles an hour at an altitude of about 124 miles. And then nine and a half minutes after launch, they're in orbit. Right, the Falcon 9 second stage has done its job delivering our four crew into orbit. Knowing that they're off and they're headed to space, that anxiety melts away. I didn't know that I jumped up and down until I saw the replay. <laughs> you get excited. You're like a kid. You're like, yeah, let's go. Watching it, everything looked just so seamless. Now, with this crew of professional astronauts in orbit, Inspiration4 is on deck. I was very aware that we're the next launch. This is the last humans going into space before it's our turn. Thinking that you know, how grateful and lucky I am to be next, but then also thinking, oh my God, I'm next. I kind of had this feeling like Inspiration4 is here and we're different and it's all gonna be different from here forward. When Inspiration4 takes off from the same spot in Florida in mid-September, the crew will spend three days in orbit, looking back at Earth, doing some science experiments, and in the largest sense, their mission is its own kind of experiment one that will show whether or not it's time for more civilians like them to head into space.
The way these relatively ordinary people were selected to go to space was a wild experiment in its own right. That's in a minute. There's another podcast we think you may like, Overheard at National Geographic, a show that takes you to the edges of our big, weird, beautiful world. In the newest season, follow a team of reporters as they take portraits of Afghanistan's youth months before the fall to the Taliban. Meet the shark lady who rode on the backs of sharks and showed us their superpowers, and discover how a computer scientist is coding ancient Aztec stories in the age of AI. Listen to Overheard at National Geographic wherever you like to listen. We're back. Chris, Cyan, and Haley were plucked from their everyday lives for this mission. One seat was chosen through this online competition. Another because her employer picked her. And the third got there from a good old-fashioned raffle. But to understand how this mission is even possible, you have to talk to Jared Isaacman. If I wanted to charter a flight to space, which I don't have the ability to do that, but if I did, how would I go about doing that? People refer to it as like chartering a, a you know, a, like it was like you're chartering a boat or an airplane. It's like not. It's a much more involved process than that. You have to know someone at the company. You have to effectively be offered the chance to do it. And then you have to have the money to make it happen, which is millions of dollars. It's not cheap, it's not easy, and it's a huge commitment. This is effectively what Jared Isaacman is going to do with SpaceX. This all started for Jared back in October. And I was on a call with SpaceX. This wasn't a call about going to space. Jared wanted to invest in SpaceX, and he recently became a billionaire after his company, called Shift4 Payments, went public. But in this case, his timing was bad. I just missed the window on a funding round that closed, and I was talking to people there. And I was trying to just do anything I could for them to <laughs> let me invest in, because I'm a like, big believer in SpaceX. At one point on this call, Jared mentions that he might like to be a client one day as in a customer on a space flight. And SpaceX puts him in touch with someone in that department, and this whole idea for a civilian mission comes together incredibly fast. And it was like two weeks later, Inspiration4 was born. It was that fast from just a casual comment that I would make to try and establish credibility maybe, like give me a shot here. It's pretty wild that just a couple of weeks after this guy got in touch with SpaceX on something that was completely unrelated, he has booked a trip to space. There's no real precedent for this in space history. Can you give us a sense for how much this mission has cost you? Nope. <laughs> what Jared did tell us is that the total cost of the mission is less than 200 million. He's paying for everyone's seat and SpaceX set the price. I mean, to be frank, like there, there was no negotiation. Um, and this was a very much a, if you want to do this, like, this is, this is what it'll be to do it. Jared knew there would be a lot of attention on the civilian flight to orbit, so he and his team devised a crew selection process like no other. One seat was chosen through this online competition. I'd like to go to space. I'm a space explorer. Like many people, I've always wanted to be an astronaut. I want to go to space. I've wanted to go to space since kindergarten. Contestants vying for this seat sent in videos pitching their entrepreneurial ideas. The people who sent in videos were bombastic and funny and really tried to show off their personalities through these tiny clips that they posted on Twitter. I want to bring the mystery and wonder of space to the everyday person while simultaneously supporting an amazing cause. They were trying to attract the judges of the competition, which included Mark Benioff of Salesforce and the editor-in-chief of Fast Company. But one video stood out. My entrepreneurial spirit lies in the fact that I combine space art with poetry. Science video. I'm Dr. Cyan Proctor. I'm a geoscientist, explorer, and analog astronaut. And I have dreamed about going to space my entire life. 
I actually came that close when I was a finalist for the NASA astronaut selection process in 2009. Cyan Proctor has been adjacent to the space world for many years. She's a community college professor and a science communicator. When I think about going to space, I'm going to space as a geoscientist. I'm going to space as an educator in space. I'm going to space as a, an artist and a poet, uh, but I'm also going to space as a Black female and as a pilot. And I wouldn't have been able to have that 10 years ago. My first impression of Cyan's video was very much that it was a little bit more understated than the others. She was very simply sort of speaking to the camera, talking about her accomplishments and how much she loves space. And she recited a poem. Consider sending a poet who knows how to rhyme. And one of the things that she emphasized in this video was the idea of a just, equitable, diverse, and inclusive space. Jedi space, which is what Cyan calls it. We have J for justice to ignite the bold. We have E for equity to cut past the old. Her submission explained exactly why she wanted to go to space and why she thought she deserved it. And she won. It felt a lot like uh, when Harry Potter found out he was a wizard. You're just kind of like, uh, did he, Did you just say I won? <laughs> so some shock <laughs> and awe that was there with just amazement to be the one. Meanwhile, while that competition was happening, there was another seat being chosen, and it was being picked through effectively a pure sweepstakes. Jared even made a Super Bowl ad to attract maximum attention. And you could be on board. Jared partnered with St. Jude Children's Research Hospital since the beginning of this mission. For this seat, anyone could donate at least $10 to the organization and had a chance to win a seat on board Inspiration4 the largest fundraising effort in St. Jude's history and the first all-civilian space flight. More than 70,000 people entered. My husband entered, and I immediately thought that the whole thing was incredibly risky. There is so much randomness to this choice. Usually, space crews are put together over the course of years, and they're tested for compatibility, and NASA astronauts are chosen specifically because of how they work together. But in this case, Jared was effectively introducing just a huge degree of risk to this mission right off the bat. The person who comes out of all of this, who gets the golden ticket, is Chris Simbrowski. He's an engineer who works for Lockheed Martin, and he's very much a family man. My first impression of Chris was that he was sort of a true space nerd. And I also, I immediately related to him for another reason, because we're both parents. And I found that the way that he spoke about his family was very familiar to me. I get on a Zoom call and start talking to the mission director. And uh, then I see my friend on there who I hadn't seen in a long time. Chris tells me that while he had donated as part of the raffle, he actually wasn't chosen. A friend of his from college was picked for the sweepstakes. I said, wow, it's good to see you. I didn't expect to see you here. But that friend who has chosen to stay anonymous couldn't go for one reason or another and gifted Chris their seat. Wow. And that's exactly what I said. <laughs> I said, wow, just a few times. Um, wow. Thank you. This is amazing. All right. I'm going to go have a cup of coffee. <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> that was how it felt. That's what it was going on. I, I think eventually I started realizing what this meant, what this was. Then there's Haley Arsenault, the physician assistant. There's so many like specific things I remember that about that day because I just, that day changed my life. She was chosen by St. Jude, her employer, to represent them in space as part of the fundraiser. St. Jude said they had something to talk to me about. They said they wanted to talk to me about a unique opportunity. I just remember visualizing it, like on the phone with them, seeing myself in a spacesuit, seeing myself in space floating, and just thinking that did kind of scare me. And then they asked if I wanted to be part of it. And immediately I said yes. You know, then I was like, well, let me check with my mom. I remember looking down and my hands were shaking. And I called my mom and I said, you're not going to believe it, but it's true. I just got invited to go to space. I just said, 
what? Like, I, it was hard to comprehend. Colleen Arsenault, Haley's mom. And she said, they said, you know, to think about it, I could, no pressure. I could think about it for a couple of weeks, talk to the family, keep it secret, but, you know, find out what your family has to say and all. And I was just like, I, I, I don't know what I think. I was like, call your brother. You know, of course, I called my brother and sister-in-law, too. They're both airspace engineers, and they made me feel better about the safety of space travel. And then she called me back, and she said, I'm, I'm contacting St. Jude and telling them I don't need a couple weeks to decide that I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And so I gave St. Jude the big yes. A few days later, I was on a Zoom call meeting Jared, and then the next week, we were flying out to SpaceX and getting fitted for a spacesuit. When she flies to space, she'll become the youngest American to actually go to orbit. And I was just so overwhelmed with feeling honored that they chose me for this. I just felt like I couldn't believe that they picked me. The Inspiration4 crew only had about five more months to prepare. And as these months progressed, they would start to face some of the hardest parts of their training. Next time, when that no comes in and you've come this close to this obscure childhood dream that you thought had slipped through your fingers, you kind of have a little bit of a breakdown. <laughs> Who gets to go to space? How It Happened, The Next Astronauts is reported and produced by Amy Padula, Naomi Shaven, Alice Wilder, and me. Dan Bobkoff is our executive producer. Mixing, sound design, and music supervision by Alex Sugiura. Original music by Michael Hampf. Fact-checking and research by Jacob Knudsen. Allison Snyder is a managing editor and my editor at Axios. And Sarah Kehelani-Gu is our executive editor. Special thanks to Axios co-founders Mike Allen, Jim Vandehei, and Roy Schwartz. I'm Miriam Kramer. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Nyla Boodoo, host of Axios Today. It's a daily podcast that gives you the latest scoops and analysis to power your day. But we don't just run through the headlines. We provide the important stories you won't get anywhere else. Everything from politics to space to race and justice. So grab a cup of coffee or a cup of tea for me and join me for 10 minutes every morning to get up to speed for the day ahead. You can listen to Axios Today on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Civilians take flight and shedding light on galactic arcs. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. A crew of four civilians is set to take flight to low Earth orbit next month, flying in SpaceX's Crew Dragon capsule. The mission, bankrolled by billionaire Jarek Isaacman, will raise money for St. Jude and will be broadcast in near real time on Netflix. It's a new chapter in spaceflight history, so how did we get here? Axios space reporter Miriam Kramer explores the mission's origin and purpose in a new podcast for Axios. We'll speak with her about her reporting and what's ahead for the Inspiration4 crew. Then, earlier this summer, scientists observed a giant arc of galaxies, stretching billion light years into the distant universe. Some say this finding has the potential to change the foundations of cosmology and the standard model of the universe. But is that really the case? Well, we'll speak with our panel of expert physicists from UCF, including cosmologist Jim Cooney, about the findings and the meaning behind the discovery. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. Next month, four civilians will take flight and head to space, riding SpaceX's Crew Dragon capsule on a Falcon 9 rocket from Kennedy Space Center on a three-day mission to low Earth orbit and back. It's the first all-civilian mission to head to space and marks a new chapter in space flight history. Axios space reporter Miriam Kramer is following the mission and producing a new podcast docuseries from Axios about the flight. To talk more about the Inspiration4 mission and Axios's new season of the How It Happened podcast, we're joined by reporter and host Miriam Kramer. Miriam, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. So in the prologue of the show, you said... This is a very complicated time in space, uh, and I, I think you're right. <laughs> so set the stage. What What's happening now in, in space, particularly commercial space and space tourism? 
Yeah, I mean, a lot, right? Like, I mean, just the summer, there were, you know, these two suborbital flights with Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson. Um, and it just, I was in many ways just like shocked by the amount of attention that was paid to these flights. Like, not to say that they aren't worthy of attention, but just I mean, everyone had a take. It was pretty amazing, actually, as someone who's been on the beat for a while, to kind of see the world suddenly turn their eyes to to private spaceflight um, and start asking, like, tough questions about it and, and sort of things that I think, you know, space reporters and others who have been following the field for a long time have been asking themselves for a while. But um, to sort of see that breakthrough in in a wider way, just personally, was was really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Good and bad takes, right? <laughs> yeah, a lot. I mean, a lot of both. I would say um, a lot of people like dropping into my mentions to sort of say how they don't want Jeff Bezos to come back, <laughs> or like wishing for a rocket explosion or something like that. And I was like, this is uh, that's that's one way of looking at it, I suppose. <laughs> Well, I mean, that definitely put commercial space, you know, front and center to the general public. But, you know, things like these missions have been in the works for years. Um, And and your podcast covers Inspiration4, which will be the first all civilian. Is that what we're calling it? What's the what's the correct terminology (laughs) to call this mission? Yeah, I think we're I think I'm still going with all civilian. Uh, I think it's the most descriptive. Uh, I've heard sort of amateur and um I think we're going to probably end up making the the argument that they're not really amateurs. <laughs> they might be rookies, but but by the time they launch, they're, they're certainly not going to be untrained. Well, I will follow your guidance, and I'm going to call it the first all-civilian mission as well. Um, let's talk about how how did this flight come to be? Um, you know, you, you spoke about, you know, these suborbital commercial space flights. This will be the first orbital space tourism flight. How do we get to this moment? Yeah, I mean, so this this flight, uh, Inspiration4, was the brainchild of a billionaire named Jared Isaacman. Uh, and he's serving as the commander on the mission, so he'll be on the flight. Uh, but instead of picking sort of three of his buddies or, you know, just pals to go with him to space, uh, he decided that he was going to basically open it up. And um, two seats were actually sort of chosen through a somewhat, I would say, random means. Um, One was like truly random. It was a raffle. (laughs) Uh, Name out of a hat, golden ticket given to the winner kind of thing. Um, And the other seat uh, that sort of falls into this category was was won through a Shark Tank style competition for entrepreneurs who basically made the case for why they should get to go to space on this mission. Um, and then the the fourth seat was was picked actually by St. Jude, who is kind of, uh, it was picked by St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Uh, and they are the beneficiary of this mission uh, in many ways. Like Jared is, is working to raise $200 million for the hospital. So there's, there's a lot here that's not just, um, uh, to be frank, r- rich white guys going to space. And that's kind of the point of this, right, is to you know, have more than just those rich billionaires that can that can pay for their seats, right? This is to open up space for all. Yeah, that's the way they're seeing it. I mean, it's the the idea is, you know, when you you being whoever uh, looks at this mission, they can find someone to relate to in some way. I mean, like uh, the folks that are flying to space are are in many ways very ordinary. You know, Chris Zimbrowski, the guy who got the golden ticket uh, from the raffle, is like a family man, an engineer. He, you know, spends time with his his daughters and his wife. Like, that's what he loves to talk about. Um, Haley, Haley Arsenault, who got her seat through St. Jude, uh, will be the first person with a prosthesis in space. So, I, I mean, and then uh, Cyan Proctor had the dream of becoming a NASA astronaut, made it to sort of a final round uh, at one point with NASA, and wasn't selected to go. So this is the way that she's getting to go to space is through private companies. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of, there are a lot of really relatable aspects of this crew that for me personally, I've just been really fascinated by for months now. Mm -hmm. 
The mission itself, though, it seemed to come together quite quickly um, with with the announcement of Jared Isaacman taking this on, and then announcing Haley, and then and then the the two, you know, random um, winners of those seats. But had had this always kind of been in place at SpaceX to offer up Crew Dragon to folks who want to buy seats to space? I think so. I mean, SpaceX has always wanted to have this, you know, human spaceflight program that was going to extend past just NASA. And I think that they were looking for the right opportunity to kind of stand it up. And in many ways, Inspiration4 is that right opportunity for them. So, you know, I mean, SpaceX, like, they have this ultimate goal of making life interplanetary, of getting hundreds of people to Mars. So in order to do that, you have to work out the kinks of these systems. Uh, and one of the ways of doing that is figuring out how to fly and train ordinary people, because you can't just fly professional astronauts if you want to build a city on Mars. Mm-hmm. You've had the chance to follow these four during their training and and leading up to this flight. Um what has that training been like? Can you can you take us inside to what what this crew of four goes through? How do you train a civilian crew, and and how have they kind of reacted to it? Um, how are they doing? Yeah, I mean, so they're they're uh, extremely busy <laughs> all the time. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I've been lucky to talk to three of the four of them every uh, almost every week since they were uh, announced uh, and selected. Um, and I can tell you, this is not like some simple thing that you slot into your everyday life. Uh, they are going back and forth to Hawthorne, SpaceX's headquarters and other training sites around the country to, you know, learn the ins and outs of Dragon. They recently did a 30 hour simulation of the mission, um, which by all accounts was was very intense, but also very fun. Uh, it sounds like Jared really wanted everyone to kind of have the astronaut experience in a lot of ways. It's like this is a lot of what professional astronauts do get trained on when they fly in the Dragon, um, just on an incredibly accelerated time scale. So they're kind of drinking from a fire hose. And it sounds like in many ways it has sort of taken over their lives, which I guess is to be expected for a space mission. But it's been interesting to to watch it from close range. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you get the sense that seeing something like this happen in real time has got to make you think about future missions to the moon or Mars by civilians is almost impossible, right? I mean, you you they're doing a quick trip to low Earth orbit, and there's so much training and planning and learning that goes into this. I mean, does this kind of make the future of ordinary humans going farther, you know, not feasible? I mean, I don't know if I want to say it isn't feasible. I think what has been interesting is how committed they have been to this training. Um, like, I've spoken to them for months, and, like, you know, they might occasionally sort of say, like, oh, you know, it's tough. Like, I haven't seen the family in a minute or whatever. But, like, they are in for this. So when you find the right, you know, group of people to take this on, I think that uh, that training becomes, you know, possible. That said, like, something like Mars, something like the moon, I mean, we are a long way from being able to send you know, tourist flights to those destinations. And I think that... In- You're telling me that's not the next, the next, uh, <laughs> the next mission's not going to Mars, Miriam? <laughs> Certainly not the next immediate mission. <laughs> but, you know, you've got, like, this is a really interesting transitional period. That's kind of the way I've been thinking about it. Like, they're just at the, just, like, SpaceX is just dipping their toe into what it means to actually send civilians to space. Um, and, you know, they want to make it like air travel, but right now, I mean, it's it's nowhere near that. So there's going to be a long line of steps to actually get to the point where normal people can really see themselves flying to space. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the, the crew is dedicated and they have had to make some sacrifices, you know, missing time with their family and such. Um, but you and I both know there is a lot of risk in these missions. Um, and, and I'm wondering if you've had the chance to talk to this crew and, and even their family and do they understand the risks of this mission and and how are they grappling with that? Yeah. um, 
I have been lucky enough to talk to them about this and to talk to some of their family members about it. And I think that they understand the risks. I feel like they think that SpaceX has prepared them well. Um, they have been going through all of these simulations and going through everything that could possibly go wrong. So they feel at least prepared to, you know, take over Dragon if they need to. They feel ready to fly to space. And I think that part of getting ready is understanding those risks for them. As for their families, I do think that it's just hard. I mean, it must be the most nerve wracking thing in the world to like watch a loved one blast off for space on a rocket. I mean, it's funny, like getting to know these folks, I know them better than I've known any space crew before them. So I actually get really nervous, like thinking about the launch. Not that I think anything bad is going to happen, but it's just, it's a high risk activity. Uh, and I, you know, I'm not a loved one. Like I'm a journalist who's just been following them, but it's, a, uh, it's an interesting thing to think about. I think, I think I, it, it's really hard to imagine the position that, you know, like Chris's wife will be in when she's watching them fly. And it, it seems like, you know, the general public is going to have a close relationship with this crew because of the publicity they're doing and because of, you know, why they're doing the mission in the first place. And having this being, you know, broadcast on Netflix, like we really are going to be closer to these astronauts than ever before. And I think that's something really cool to think about, isn't it? Yeah. And I mean, it's by design, right? Like the first all civilian crew, like they're just like us. Like that's that's the message of this mission. And uh, I, I think that, that folks are really starting to tune into that now, especially just a few weeks uh, before launch. Uh, Miriam, I listened to, to the prologue of, of the podcast, and there was there was a moment in it where I became very, very jealous of you, is when you were describing seeing the spacecraft. And I was like, oh, I, what I would do to, to, to be there with you. <laughs> so you got to tell me. Tell me about it. What did it look like? It's got this really cool cupola installed. Oh, my gosh. Uh, tell us all about it. Yeah. So what I actually got to see when I was at SpaceX was the cupola. The, the Dragon itself, I think, was already in Florida, so I didn't get to see that. But we were walking past a clean room on sort of like a little tour of the facility. Uh, and I looked over and I was just like, hey, what are what's that? <laughs> is that it? <laughs> like, is, is that, that it? what I think it is? <laughs> and it was like, and yeah, it was like these two glass domes that were just sort of sitting in the front of this clean room. And it, they, I was just like, oh, my God, like, that's that's the cupola. Like, that's the much, much heard about window that all of us, you know, nerds were, were hoping to see. <laughs> um, so that was really neat. Like, it was because the cupola for me is almost like a like a character in this story, like in the story of Inspiration 4, um, because like. Yeah, I mean, it's never flown in space before, and it's a window, and it's like a continuous bubble window <laughs> in space. Like, that's – it's it's so funny. It's like it's so risky, and it's so SpaceX, and they are so confident, like, that it's just going to work fine. And, like, in a lot of ways, it sounds like it will, but it's just – it's this very funny, you know, it, it just – is a perfect example of why this mission is different from other missions. Like it's this aesthetic play uh, to have this, this incredible window on top of their capsule. Mm -hmm. And you said you saw too, does that mean there could be uh, <laughs> more of these uh, installed for future flights? I think that they might be planning on that, but the one, the, the two that I saw, one of them I think was a test article. So they were going to like put it through its paces basically to make sure it was going to, you know, hold up to the pressure of going to space. They're not secretly saving it for an all-journalist uh, trip to space, are they? You know, I should ask next time to be like, so, like, can I – is that for us? Like, can we go? Well, Miriam Kramer is the space reporter at Axios, and she hosts the next season of How It Happened. You can get the first episode exploring this mission, Inspiration4, starting August 31st on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Miriam, thanks again for, for coming back on. This was a great conversation. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. Still to come, does a discovery of a giant arc of galaxies change the way we understand our universe? Our experts weigh in. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. Support for 90.7 News comes from Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex. Now open and offering guests a chance to explore the wonders of the universe and see where space exploration is heading. Guests can experience the park by walking in the Rocket Garden, standing nose-to-nose -nose with Space Shuttle Atlantis, and witnessing a rocket launch. More information is available at kennedyspacecenter.com. 
You're listening to Are We There Yet here on WMFE, America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. Earlier this summer, scientists observed a giant arc of galaxies stretching 3 billion light years in the distant universe. Some say this finding has the potential to change the foundation of cosmology and the standard model of our universe. But is that really the case? Well, we'll chat with our panel of expert physicists from UCF and hosts of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy, Jim Cooney, Addie Dove, and Josh Caldwell, about those findings and the meaning behind that discovery. Jim Cooney begins our conversation. So, on the very largest scales in the universe, we have always thought that the, universe, the, the, the galaxies would be kind of randomly sprinkled around. The universe should be, on its biggest scales, fancy words, homogeneous and isotropic, basically just means the same everywhere. This arc of galaxies is hinting that maybe that's not true. An arc of galaxies just means we took a look at the distribution of galaxies and found that there's this like elongated string, kind of like a a smiley face, uh, if you look at the picture, of galaxies arranged in this way. When they should be randomly sprinkled, they don't seem to be quite randomly sprinkled. So that's... squint. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's not necessarily obvious to the naked eye, but it's... Statistically it's only the smile of the smiley face, and there's a whole bunch of other it's – it's got a lot of other things going on on that face mm-hmm. too. Now, cosmologist Alexa Lopez said the finding would, quote, if it's, if it's confirmed, would, quote, overturn cosmology as we know it. Our oh, standard model, not no. to put it heavily, kind of falls through. Jim, what, is, what does that mean? What is so, right, that right. This is why this is extremely exciting. I, when I say exciting, I mean I doubt that it's really going to overturn everything, but the potential is there. So – like I just said, that this assumption that the universe is the same everywhere on very large scales. Obviously, that's not true on small scales, right? We live on a planet, and if you go uh, a little ways off, there's empty space, right? So things aren't the same everywhere yeah. on small scales. But on large scales, when you average things on large scales, things should be the same everywhere. That, that, that's pretty foundational to our models of exactly. cosmology. In cosmology, that's called the cosmological principle. Not very uh, inventively named, but uh, that's... A foundation of how all of our models are built on that foundation. If that foundation turns out to be unstable, we're in trouble, right? Uh, so, if you the one one of the uh, sort of nightmare scenarios uh, for, oh, for some, yes, <laughs> it's not. It's a it's an intellectual nightmare. It's okay. not. It's yeah. not anything bad <laughs> happening. No it's just. Here, okay. it, it's just a question of how well are we able to understand the universe? You can. As the universe is expanding, you could imagine a point in time when the only thing inside the observable universe is the Milky Way galaxy. And if we had come along at that point in time, everything else would have expanded beyond what we could see. Then you would conclude that the universe is a galaxy mm-hmm. and that's what the universe looks like. And so the cosmological principle, if that's overturned, maybe hints at something along those lines going on. It's like, well, we're not – in a representative time or we didn't catch things early enough or something weird happened before and we're in some sort of splotchy uh, chunk Mm -hmm. of the universe and the rest of the true overall structure of the universe is hidden from us somehow. That's – that is terrifying to think about (laughs) actually. So it's scary. Neil deGrasse Tyson says this is one of his scariest thoughts. uh, But I think it's unlikely. He has a very easy life. (laughs) <laughs> yes, yes. If that's what you're waking up scared by, you're, that's true. But uh, but I share uh, Jim's doubts that this will be uh, overturning cosmology. Yeah, I, we had spoke about this earlier before we were uh, recording this conversation, Josh, and, and you're skeptical of this, right? I mean, describe your skepticism. Well, the the human eye likes to find patterns. The human brain likes to find patterns. And so if you look at the picture of what they've got there – you can say, oh, it looks kind of like a smiley face in the middle there of this arc of galaxies. And then you say, well, I'm a scientist, I'm going to test that to see is it truly non-random. If we expect things to be distributed randomly, then sometimes there will be two things next to each other, mm-hmm. other things that are farther apart. But the more things that are next to each other, the less likely that is to occur by sort of a random sprinkling of matter across the universe. And so – then you have to do some mathematical statistical tests on this to say, all right, what are the odds that this particular sprinkling of galaxies that makes this sort of arc, uh, what are the odds that that came about just by sort of random chance uh, or is it 
so unlikely that it's saying something fundamental about the distribution of matter in the universe that isn't really Mm -hmm. uniform. And that's where you get into some really tricky stuff of Mm -hmm. designing your statistical tests, checking that there aren't some observational effects that went into the detection of this smiley face that prevented you from seeing a couple of other dots in your picture. And those other dots all of a sudden make the smile go away. Mm -hmm. Oh, (laughs) <laughs> this i mean this is a, a it's a, a big picture of the universe how how is this captured how do you how do you even look this wide view and find these patterns and look at these patterns yeah so these days we have you know we have these uh instruments and uh, programs where we look at lots and lots and lots of things all at once right like we said we're not uh, we said this a couple segments ago uh, weeks ago, I don't know when these things air, but uh, <laughs> they don't. They don't. Time is relative. In the future, we yeah. maybe said it. Uh, but th- we don't have to look at in one thing anymore, right? It, you know, it's not like Galileo looking through his telescope at one object and then another one and another. We have these these instruments where we can look at thousands of of objects all at once, and so we we go out there and we look at the distribution of galaxies. Of course, galaxies themselves produce light. This particular uh, measurement wasn't produced by looking at the galaxies themselves, but by looking at uh, how the light from very distant background things called quasars, which are kind of progenitors of galaxies in the very early universe, uh, how the light from those things goes through the material between us and them. Hmm. Uh, some of that light gets absorbed and deflected, and we can detect that, and that tells us where the stuff in between is. So that gives us a map of what the universe looks like on very, very large scales. Yeah, and this was using, I think most of this data was from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, which has been going right. for a long time. So it collects lots of data of, and these broad swaths of the sky. Yep. Um, I actually don't know, like, what percentage of the sky sort of we were looking in for this. Well, it's just 3 so, billion light years across. I mean, it's not it's not like covering the whole mm-hmm. hemisphere of the sky or anything mm-hmm. like that. It's a fair chunk of the sort of size of the observable universe, but they're distant uh, so it's it's an arc. Um, they they, they, <laughs> they sounds medium excited. Huh? Yeah. I, so I I'm even I'm even low Lesser, excited yeah. on this one. Um, I I mean, of course, it's an observation where you you make the observation, you run your test, you say, holy cow, we found something here that is potentially transformational to cosmology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That you better pay attention to that, and you better follow it up. Right. Um, it comes down to. Are there some systematics in the observations that made it so that the map you're seeing is not exactly right? And then the interpretation. Is it truly a a significant indication of Mm non-homogeneity in the distribution of matter? And they mentioned they did a lot of statistical tests. And some of those statistical tests, it passed with the gold standard five sigma. Um, But of course, you have to really understand what is the statistical test that you're asking. And mm-hmm. the statistical test presupposes that everything else is well understood. That you, The statistical test says, I'm going to take 100 galaxies, I'm going to plop them down, and what are the chances I end up with a smiley face? And it turns out to be one in a million. Mm-hmm. You're like, okay, it's, it's real. But that's not what your observation really is, right? Your observation has all these other things going on in it. Mm-hmm. But that, that's the scientific process, right? You Absolutely. have this finding and... and, mm-hmm. and... Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So hopefully, I don't. I don't know how much they're going to be able to look in other parts of the sky now and do some of these other surveys in other areas. Yeah, that was my next question. What what kind of follow up needs to happen other than kind of looking at the statistical methods here? I mean, is, is can there be more observations to? Yeah, for sure. Like Eddie said, we, this is only a small part of the the total sky, and so doing this same kind of observation in a whole bunch of different patches of sky is going to give you a better idea of whether this uh, is a real thing or not. Um, and like Josh said, this is, so Josh, Josh is, is low excited. The, uh, the reason I'm excited is not that actually because I, I share Josh's skepticism, skepticism about this being a, a real thing. And, and, and to be fair, the authors of this paper aren't suggesting this is absolutely going to demolish cosmology. They're saying, look at this. This is really interesting. Mm-hmm. But like Josh said, the reason this is so fascinating is it's it's probably a low probability that it's real. But if it is, the consequences are enormous. Uh, I've built, you know, I, I teach classes all the time. I do research in cosmology and all of these things all are based on this one fundamental thing that the universe is homogeneous on its largest scales. If it's not, 
Man, I got a lot of uh, <laughs> retractions to make. <laughs> Changing some syllabi, huh? Yeah. That has a lot of because that has a lot of implications for like how things form in the galaxy and where they are in the universe and where they form and how structures are able to come into existence and yeah. Yeah. evolve. And so, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's not gonna you know, it's not gonna, it's not everything we say and do is gonna be wrong or anything like that. Eddie and I are totally fine. Cause it, cause <laughs> yeah, it doesn't affect planetary science at all. So we're golden, <laughs> right? <you know. laughs> So something to keep an eye on, but also with a healthy dose of skepticism, right? Right. I mean, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Right and on. this is something so transformational, requires definitely investigation and follow-up. Mm-hmm. We've been speaking with physicists at the University of Central Florida and hosts of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy, Josh Caldwell, Addie Dove, and Jim Cooney. Thank you all for being here. Great to be here. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. You can do that on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. Support for Are We There Yet comes from you, our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.